following message was recorded at River City Church. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. my favorite subjects in school, poetry didn't make it into the top 10. But there was one poem that caught my imagination and that I can actually still remember lines from today. I remember it because it painted such a vivid picture in my mind and the poet Robert Frost was even good enough to put that picture into the title of the poem. It was called Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening and that's exactly what it described a memory the poet had of briefly stopping his pony and trap one night to stare in wonder at the beauty of a wood filling up with snow. For some reason, I've always remembered the last verse in which he explains why he couldn't stay longer in that beautiful moment. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. You know, that experience of having to pull yourself away from something you'd love to dwell on in order to make it to your destination is something I experience every time I try and prepare a message. <laughs> I have a destination in mind, a subject I want to write on. But when I start my journey into God's Word, the depth and the beauty of His Word keeps drawing me in, and I rarely end up where I intended. In fact, I've become convinced that if I am not overwhelmed and drawn away from my plan by His beauty, then it is unlikely that what I end up saying will cause anyone to encounter Him. And that is actually what He wants for us, an encounter with Him. I usually do set out, you know, with every intention of writing and speaking about things that may be useful for people, things people can do, but I almost always never end up there. In this very present season we're in this pandemic, you know, um, I have had 10 weeks of opportunity to talk about what we should be doing in such a situation. But each week I can only find the peace of God in speaking of what He has done rather than what you and I need to be doing. In this season, and in fact in every season of life, I find myself persuaded that the greatest need people have is for an encounter with God's Spirit through whom they come to know Christ and thus the Father. Knowing them is Jesus' definition of eternal life, the quality of life that man was made for, communion with God. Now man's need for such a, an encounter is the reason God poured out his Holy Spirit into a group of men and women sitting in that upper room in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost nearly 2,000 years ago. Every generation needs an encounter with God, and this is why every generation needs the mighty wind of the Holy Spirit to lift our souls out of the darkness of living imprisoned by your fears and cut off from the light of God's love. Now we've seen <clears throat> in recent weeks that just as darkness is the absence of light, so fear is an absence. The absence of the perfect love of God, a love which casts out fear in the way light casts out darkness, Psalm 119 says it like this, The entrance of your words gives light, illumination, understanding. So I'm going to begin to speak this morning 
about the love of God. And I believe that what I'm going to say is going to effectively shine a light into some dark thoughts that some listening may have always had about God, which have hindered you from encountering him as he really is. Now, last week we saw that to the question, do you believe in God? Many people will say yes, in that they believe in his existence. But to the question, do you know God? Those same people will most often hesitate. That is because we all hesitate to say we know someone whom we have never met, and we certainly find it very difficult to trust someone whom we have never met. Today I want to show you that there is only one thing that brings a person from believing in the existence of God to knowing him and trusting him, an encounter with him. There is no better day to talk about encounter than Pentecost Sunday because God has poured out his Holy Spirit onto the earth precisely because he wants men and women to encounter him for who he really is. We were built for an encounter with God because we were all made to know him and we'll never find rest in this life apart from knowing him. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses expresses this cry of the human heart to know God. Now by that time in his life, he had met God many times, yet his desire to know him only grew. That chapter records him saying to God, in effect, I want to know you, your presence, show me your glory, who you really are. And in his reply to Moses, God said something very significant about what it is to know him. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. If you have not had an encounter with the goodness of God, then you do not yet know him in the way he desires you to. I'll say that again. If you have not yet had an encounter with the goodness of God, then you do not yet know him in a way he desires you to. You know, for many people, that statement though, that God is good, is little more than a cliche that has no impact on their day-to-day -day lives. And when you look at all the pain and the suffering in this world, it's not difficult to see why for so many people to declare God to be good appears to directly contradict their own experience of tragedy <clears throat> and grief and deep disappointment at their own brokenness and that of the world around them. I think most people would love to believe that God is good, but they have a problem with the way the world is. If God is good, why is this world in the state it is? Now to answer that question, I need to point you to the source of God's goodness, his very nature, which the Bible defines as the love of God. And simply say that true love, his love, never forces its own way, because true love wants freedom for those loved, the freedom to choose. Let me say that a different way. The love of a father or a mother would never let them rob their own children of the very quality that makes those children who they are, their free will. What I'm going to show you today is that God is a father who puts such a high value on mankind as made in his image and so gifted with free will that he cannot lightly step in and deprive man of that very free will. Although it hurts him to see the choices man has made and how those choices have filled the world with suffering and grief, to deprive man of the consequences of his choices is to deprive him of the very free will that is the image of God in him. Let me say that in plain English. The sovereignty of God does not mean that God is responsible for everything that happens in this world. For God in his sovereignty 
chose to give man dominion over this world and responsibility for this world. Why? Because he is a father and a father wants his children to grow up to be like him, but knows they cannot without being given the privilege and responsibility of freedom. To be made in the image of God is to have the freedom to make moral choices and live in the world our choices have made. Now, when Jesus described to the Pharisees that account of the prodigal son demanding his inheritance from his father and then walking out on him, the part of the story that would have shocked them most was not just that the father welcomed him back as if he had done nothing wrong, but that the father had permitted him to go his own way in the first place. But Jesus was revealing the nature of God to be a father whose love will not permit him to deny us our freedom, even the freedom to make poor choices. So yes, God is sovereign, but look who this God is who is sovereign. He is a father who loves us so much that he sovereignly chose to give us the privilege and responsibility of sharing in his sovereignty over this world by giving man dominion over this world. Now, why would he do that? Especially when he knew the consequences, because it is his nature to share all he has. His nature is selfless, not selfish. The Father, Son, and Spirit know no other life but a shared life. And this is the life they invite us into. And if you think that invitation has come at a high price for man, that is nothing to what it cost God to open up his life to us. What a privilege and what a responsibility was given to Adam to be given dominion over this world. But Adam believed a lie that he could carry that privilege and responsibility on his own, apart from God. Like the prodigal son, he took what the father had given him and headed out into the world, thinking he could make a life for himself, by himself. But God always knew that by yourself is not life, it is death. And so it was that through Adam separating himself from God, choosing to live the by yourself life, what the Bible calls sin, that death came into the world. So when people talk about the sovereignty of God, can you see that it's, it is precisely because God is a loving Father who does not withhold privilege and responsibility from His children that He cannot exercise sovereignty like some autocrat or dictator who has to micromanage every aspect of His dominion because He's too selfish or too insecure to share His power. But many Christians prefer to believe that God has not given us such authority over what happens in this world, and that he, in fact, remains the actual cause of everything, good and bad, that happens in this world. In other words, that his will is always being done all the time. Now that rather begs the question, doesn't it? Why did Jesus ask us to pray that the Father's will will be done on the earth as it is in heaven, if it already is being done on earth as it is in heaven? Now remember, we're talking about an encounter with the goodness of God, and I'm pointing out that the broken state of the world remains in many people's minds a great hindrance to believing in the goodness of God, especially when they're told by many Christians that yes, God is in absolute control over all the tragedy and grief you have suffered. But why is it that so many Christians, despite all the difficulties this belief causes, would rather believe that God is the cause of everything that happens. I'm going to suggest to you a very simple reason. 
Many Christians have a much lower view of man than God does. And when you've been brought up with such a low view of man, the mere idea that God would give such freedom, such privilege, such responsibility, such dominion over this world to man appears to be almost criminally irresponsible. Why, that would be like a father handing over a small fortune to a young man with no sense. I mean, who in the right mind would ever describe God as such a father? Jesus. In Luke 15, that is exactly how Jesus described the Father, not once, but three times, describing the shepherd searching with such passion for his lost sheep, the widow searching with such diligence for her lost coin, and the father of the prodigal son scanning the horizon every day, longing for the day when the one he desires to share all he has with will be reunited with him. We may have a low view of ourselves and our fellow man, but just think of the value that God the Father has placed on man, such a high value that he never stops searching for him so that he can be united with him. The thing that continually trips us up and leaves us, it leaves us developing highly complex theological explanations of God's will that you would need a degree to understand it, is that we continually underestimate how passionately loved we are. Only when you understand that you are the apple of someone's eye will their apparently reckless and illogical behavior start to make sense to you. Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. You see, you don't describe something as lost unless it is valuable. If I get home and discover that I've dropped a tissue out of my pocket while I was walking on the beach, I don't say, I've lost my tissue. But if I get home and discover that I've drop my mobile phone, I'll go around telling everyone I've lost my phone and I will definitely drive back to the beach and search for it. The greater the value you place in something, the greater the lengths you will go in searching for it. You know, there have been moments when one of our children has gone missing when they just didn't appear where we expected them to. And we started to search and the more time that went by without being reunited with them, the more urgent our search became and the more distraught we became. Soon you will gladly offer all you have to be reunited with them. Why? Because that is the worth, the value you put in your children. They are priceless to you. You see, the more we see God as a father, the less it will surprise us at just how an opinion he has of man and how much he desires man to share in his life, including the privilege and responsibility of sonship. Many of us want to believe in God's sovereignty as something he keeps to himself, but a father's heart for his children is such that he cannot withhold anything of himself from them. The Apostle Paul spoke of the selflessness of the father in this way. For if he did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? There's that little word again that so offends our low view of man, the word all. Can you see that it is the revelation of God as a good father that is the foundational truth without which we will always struggle to understand why the world is as it is? The Apostle John opened his gospel by stating that before Jesus came, no man had ever seen God at any time. But he who has come from the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. Now that Greek word there, translated revealed, exegete, is the very one we still use to describe a proper understanding of a biblical passage. Jesus was and is the only true exegesis of the Father. 
To see how loving the Father is, we only need to look at how loved the Son believed himself to be. Only a perfectly loved Son can reveal a perfectly loving Father. Jesus living before us as a man who knew that God had given him all he had to give, lived a selfless life. He was so secure and confident in who he was in the eyes of his Father because he was never without the Spirit. And that life of confidence and security leading to selflessness is the life that the Father offers to us by the giving of his Spirit. Imagine the world it would be if everyone lived a selfless life rather than a selfish life. That is a world where men and women are filled with God's Spirit. God desires us as believers to mature in sonship, to grow up in Christ. Growing up means greater privilege and greater responsibility. Yet much of the church resists that sort of growing, that sort of growing up. As long as we prefer to leave Him with all the responsibility, then our prayers never mature past asking Him to do everything. So to every crisis that comes along, our response is to pray that He takes responsibility. We pray, Lord, you can do it. We believe you can do it. Please will you do it. Do it for us. But what if the God we are praying to is a Father, a loving Father, a Father whose love cannot settle for doing it for us when His heart's desire has always been to do it with us. The good news of the Gospel is that because God's sovereignty is the sovereignty of a loving Father, not only could He not deny us as His children by removing His image from us, our capacity to choose and all the consequences of our choices, but as a loving Father, He was never going to abandon us either to ourselves and our choices. He knew that the only way to bring us out of our death spiral of self-centeredness and fear was to join us in the world of pain and rejection we made even unto death. Christ and Him crucified is God joining us for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us depart. <laughs> Only here's the best part. To share in His life is to be joined with a life that death cannot part you from. For Him joining Himself to us is always stronger than us separating ourselves from Him. Because Christ came, and made a way for God and man to be joined, to be in communion, to be in one life together, the Holy Spirit is now able to bring all who want to, remember, love doesn't rob you of your choice, to bring all who want to into the life of God, the shared life of Father, Son, and Spirit. So I'm speaking to you about the goodness of God because I'm confident that as you get a taste of the goodness of God, a desire to be joined with Him will be birthed in you by His Spirit, now, there's a divine timing in the life of every individual, for again, God will not force his love on us, but he woos us. Now, there's a word you don't often, often hear these days, but it's a beautiful word. And there's a beautiful verse in the Song of Solomon which describes this wooing, and it is actually repeated three times. Do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. So what we've been seeing today is that God is a Father who put such a high value on mankind as made in His image and so gifted with free will that He cannot lightly step in and blur that image by either continually restricting our freedom to make bad choices or continually removing the consequences of our bad choices. So what is He to do? If we can't be like Him on our own 
and he doesn't want to take away our freedom and just do everything for us, is there a way in which he can do it with us? A way in which we can have and do life together? Yes, there is a way, and that way has a name. He is the Holy Spirit. His Spirit is gentle enough and patient enough for God to reach out to us in a way that doesn't deny His image in us, doesn't deny us the capacity to freely choose, but yet empowers us to choose in a different way. The difference His Spirit makes is that now He has not left us to choose alone. God's Spirit, His grace, His presence is freely given to us so that we no longer have to make our choices in the dark, but in the light of His goodness. God's Spirit is so gentle and so patient with us because He knows just how deep is our darkness, how deep is the anger and despair that has blinded us to His goodness, to knowing Him. He knows because He chose to come and experience the full force of our anger and its consequences, to enter fully into the darkness of our separated condition on the cross. He did that because His plan was always to make the light to shine in the darkness. And that is why there is power in the gospel, in the news of God's goodness, to bring people out of darkness because the entrance of His word, the hearing of just how much He loves you and what He has given to you, all that He has is like a great light being switched on, on the inside of you. A light that does what all your best intentions and all your willpower alone could never do. Cast the fear of death out of you. You know, there may be someone listening to this message who has suffered greatly in their life. And in their pain and anger, they have laid everything bad that happened to them at God's feet. I want to tell you that God understands your pain and he does not turn away from your anger. Instead, he has sent his Holy Spirit to open your eyes so that you can see that the feet that you're laying all your troubles at are pierced because long before you decided to label him as guilty because of his sovereignty and make him the scapegoat, he decided to be the scapegoat, to take all the hatred and anger and rejection that we brought into this world onto himself. Why? Because that's what a good father does. He refuses to abandon his children, but in love stands between them and what is killing them and takes it onto himself before he will let it get to his children. That was a decision God took before he even made us. For the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. He has been such a father from all eternity, one who was always going to share his life with us. And the only life he knows is a selfless one. That is why his Holy Spirit has been given to us. So that through receiving his spirit, we can experience his shared life, his selfless life and so be healed of all the pain and rejection that the by myself life, the selfish life has brought us. It was always God's desire that we would know his life, a selfless life. Life to God has never been a by yourself experience, an I life, but always an us life. God never said, I shall make man in my image. Genesis records his words as, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. But that's not the end of the verse, for immediately God defines what it means for us to be made in his image. Listen to the whole verse. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What a privilege and what a responsibility was given to Adam to be given dominion over this world. But Adam believed a lie that he could carry that privilege and responsibility on his own, apart from God. None of us can because we were never made to be apart from God. We were not made for death. We were made for life, for being joined to him. And that is why he freely shares his life with all who will choose to receive him, a choice that he never leaves us to make alone in the dark, but because now his Holy Spirit is here with us so that we can make that choice in the light of his goodness. So often, you know, when we hear people talking about choosing to follow Christ or choosing to believe in God, it almost sounds like that choosing is something that they can do alone, that all we need is enough facts to base our decision on. But God's word tells us that no man can call Jesus Lord, can choose to believe in Christ and share in the life of God, eternal life, on their own. We can only make that choice because of the presence of God's Spirit who pours into our hearts an experience of God's nature, His love. You could say the only decision your head can come to is the one your heart has already made. It is the decision that only an encounter of your heart with God's Spirit can bring you to. In this present pandemic we're in, we have been bombarded as never before with advice on what we should do to live. I've shared with you this morning that to God, life apart from Him is not living. Your soul was not made to live in spiritual lockdown, socially distanced from God's Spirit. Jesus said, My words are spirit and they are life. So whether you like it or not, by hearing of the goodness of God this morning, you have been exposed to something much more infectious and much more powerful than coronavirus, the Spirit of God. It is because of our need for such encounters that God poured out His Holy Spirit into a group of men and women sitting in that upper room in Jerusalem on that day of Pentecost nearly 2,000 years ago. Every generation needs an encounter with God. And this is why every generation needs the mighty wind of the Holy Spirit to lift our souls out of the darkness of living in prison by our fears and cut off from the light of God's love. An encounter with God's Spirit is something more than an intellectual exercise. It is a profound experience that goes right to the heart of what it is to be human. In that encounter is light light enough to see that living apart from God has been like living in the dark. It is not living at all. Only an encounter with God's Spirit can cause us to know truth in a way that our intellect alone can never do, because even our intellect was not made to think alone. You know, we've been speaking in recent weeks about how the Holy Spirit, in the words of Romans 8:16, testifies with, bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And I've attempted in various ways to try and paint word pictures of what that means. But you know, there are some experiences that cannot be expressed in words alone. The infilling, the baptism of God's Spirit is such an experience. An encounter with the Holy Spirit is not something that words are adequate for. It was the Apostle Paul who said that for the gospel to be shared as God wants it to be shared, men need more than wise and persuasive words. They need a demonstration of the Spirit's power. They need an encounter with the love of God. 
Now earlier the word I used to describe the gentleness of God's Spirit in handling our free will was wooing. He woos us. You know, there are some things in life that cannot be understood with words alone, but they need an encounter. Take being wooed. Take falling in love. How do you adequately express in words the feeling of being kissed for the first time by someone with whom you're in love? In that kiss is an experience of intimacy that a thousand conversations never brought you into. The kiss isn't disconnected from the preceding conversation. The conversation leads up to the kiss, but the kiss also changes the conversation. Now that you've received an experience of confirmation that you are indeed loved, there is a heightened confidence and joy when you speak of the one you love. And in fact, from that moment on, conversations with him will no longer seem complete unless a kiss is part of the conversation. There is now a new experiential dimension to your relationship. Having shared a kiss with them, you feel that you know them in a way that you never knew them before. You could say the kiss changed the conversation and brought the relationship to a new level. Right now, across the world, the Holy Spirit is at work in the church to bring God's people into a new level of maturity, a greater experience of sonship, the privilege and the responsibility of growing up into the shared life that he always wanted for us, life in Christ. At the beginning of last year, you know, I shared a statement with the church that I felt the Lord had laid in my heart for us. It was a calling upwards into this shared life of privilege and responsibility for this world a calling into a greater maturity of sonship. I felt the Lord was saying to us, I am not asking you to do one thing for me. I only ask that you do everything with me. I think that goes for prayer too. It is great to hear your children learn to speak, but your desire for them is always that they mature out of their childish language so that you can enjoy with them a higher conversation, a greater communion to pray from our position in Christ, to pray from the privilege and responsibility of sonship, our prayers have to mature past asking God to do everything for us. All that prayer does is keep us in waiting mode, living for years as if our best days are ahead of us, the days of knowing what it is to live in the presence of God. Pentecost has come. The Holy Spirit is here so that we no longer have to live and pray as if help will come one day. Because of Pentecost, the Father can now say to his church, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, see, now is the day of salvation. Now, in this season, when suddenly we're having to stop planning ahead and start as never before living in the day we're in and appreciating what we have, what better time for the church to have an encounter with God's Spirit that brings us into a new level of maturity, a selflessness that can only be lived out by those who see that their Father has withheld no good thing from them. God bless you. Have a great Pentecost.